Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to VCs at UCD, your one-stop opportunity here from venture capitalists here at UC Davis. Um, my name is Aaron Anderson. I'm the director of the Student Startup Center. I want to welcome everybody here. It is my pleasure today to introduce Josh Moser, a partner at Petri, a VC focused on sustainability and, um, and all sorts of, uh, we'll call them harder sciences than your typical software play. Um, so Josh has been uh, there for a while now, rocking and rolling as a venture investor doing really hard science. And so let's give Josh a round of applause. Welcome him joining us today. Josh, it's good to have you here. Thank you very much. Um, Thanks, Aaron. So Josh, with all that said, let's, let's level set before we do anything else. Can you tell us about your firm, um, more detail about what you do and, and why you think this is an important uh, investment perspective uh, to have. Yeah, totally. And and first off, Aaron, thanks for for having me and for everything you do. Um, I think anything that is done to encourage entrepreneurships, entrepreneurship in kind of college and uh, grad environments is awesome. Um, so I am uh, one hundred and ten percent supportive. Um, and I would also just echo um, if you guys have questions, you. If it's okay with you, Aaron, I'm even cool with it happening as we talk um, and not just saving them for the end. Like if there's something that you, that I say that you don't agree with or have a question about or want to debate, um, I'd love to, love to do that live. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, to your question. So maybe I'll just give the, the quick rundown on Petrie so that everybody has it and and I can just share a little bit about our approach because I think it, it's a little bit different and, and probably is different than some of the stuff that, that everybody here has, has heard about. Um, so uh, at Petrie, we're a formation stage venture firm um, and we focus on companies at the intersection of biology and engineering. And so uh, about half of what we do is in the human health realm. So therapeutics, diagnostics, research tools. And then the other half, as you mentioned, Aaron, is in... I call it sustainability, um, but it really can be sustainability, food, agriculture, carbon removal. Um, and uh, those are the things that we focus on at Petri. Um, I think our, our model is quite a bit different. So our model, we work with very technical founders, many of which come, um, how do you spell it? Uh, P-E-T-R-I, Petri.bio is the website. I'll just throw it in the chat here. Um, and uh, our model is we work with very technical founders and many of them come right out of um, academic context. So it's a lot of PhDs, postdocs, professors, um, they've invented something interesting and they want to extend the impact of what they've built in the real world by forming a company. And that's typically where we come in. And you know, there's um, across the venture ecosystem, there's, um, you know, people who will invest in companies at every single stage of the company um, from uh, inception all the way through series D, E, F, G, H, whatever. Um, and then even when a company exits and goes public. Um, we are, we call ourselves formation stage venture investors. We truly are formation stage investors. Um, we actually, most of the companies that we've worked with to date, we knew the founders prior to them even having uh, a company set up. So there was no incorporated entity. It was just a couple of founders. They had um, a technology that they'd invented or an idea that they wanted to commercialize. And it was at that point that we started working with them. You will find that most other investors will not go that early. Almost none of them will, unless it's with, unless they're investing in 
somebody who's already um, kind of sold a company before. So if, if Mark Zuckerberg started a company, I think every investor in Silicon Valley would say, you're Mark Zuckerberg, I will give you um, $100 million and you can go build the next thing. Um, but we're really working mostly with first time and in some cases, second time founders who are just getting started. Um, and what we try to do is we try to work with them very intimately for about 12 months on taking something that is more or less an academic project and turning it into something that is more or less a company. And so what does that mean? It's uh, one is de-risking the technology. So what do we think we need to do? What kind of technical data do we need to get in order to unlock additional financing? What's gonna get the next investor comfortable that this actually works? And it may be a proof of concept. It might be demonstrating some yield or efficiency. Um, but we usually have a hypothesis around what kind of data do we need to get in order for somebody else to come in and, and take risk. Um, we do that by de-risking the market. So we try to have early customer discovery conversations with potential customers. Um, we try to size the market. We try to develop a go-to-market strategy such that we can articulate what is the actual business model and market opportunity for a given company. Um, we try to help companies file additional IP, uh, usually patents. Um, and uh, such that an investor will feel more comfortable taking on risk because there's been some protection of the underlying technology. And then I think most importantly, we help companies build out their team. Like I said, a lot of the, a lot of the companies we work with, they're usually just, it's just a PhD student or maybe it's a professor and a postdoc. Um, that looks like an academic project. It does not look like a company. And so we try to bring on advisors, scientific advisors, board members, first hires, co-founders, um, in order to really build out a team that can then go out and raise a lot more capital. And it's, it's our belief that if we do those things well enough with the entrepreneurs, that we can then collectively go out and raise a lot more money. Um, and so when we invest, we typically call it formation seed or, or pre-seed investments. Um, and those are usually on the order of 250 to $500,000 um, and it's our belief that if we work well enough with our companies that we can then go out and raise three, four, five, six, seven million dollars um, at a at a seed round. Um, and I would say that the other um, the other differentiating factor for Petri is the network that we founded Petri with. So if um, the website is in the chat, and if you guys were to go on the website and scroll down to our co-founders, um, we tried to bring in, people who have already built really compelling companies at this intersection of biology and engineering, or um, are still working on some of the leading um, academic technologies in this space into Petri so that they could in turn help our portfolio companies. And we try to get them involved in our companies in uh, a variety of different ways. But the idea is basically, let's take people who've already done this, who've already run this play before, um, let's bring them into our into Petri and into our portfolio company so they, they can teach the founders who are doing this maybe for the first time or second time um, all of the mistakes that they've made um, and all of the things that, that, that they've learned along the way. And we found this to be a really fruitful model. Um, and I'm frankly surprised that more venture investors don't do something like this. Um, but I think it's it's really uh, it's really something that that we take pride in at Petri. So yeah, I think that's that's our approach. Um, if there's any specific follow-ups in that, I'm, I'm happy to go into it because I think our approach is quite a bit different than um, other investors out there. And if, I'm happy to talk more about that if that's useful, but um, that's that's a little bit about what we do.
Okay. Well, so Josh, let me ask a couple follow-ups then. So yeah. when you say formation stage, like you're not kidding here. We're literally talking about forming the teams and forming the companies. Um, that's hard with software. It strikes yeah. me as incredibly difficult, I would imagine, at the intersection of engineering and biology. Can you tell me, it, I guess, two questions here. Like one, how do you evaluate an opportunity that early? The, the team, the market, the tech. And, and two, you know, in science is this hard, like what can you do with a half a million dollar, quarter million dollar investment? Yeah, both great questions. Um, so I guess the first one is how do we evaluate companies this early? Um, it tends to be, we look at the things that we can actually evaluate. There's a lot of things we can't evaluate because they're so early. And those are the risks that we end up taking. And the framework is actually exactly what you just laid out, Aaron, which is the, really the lens that we look at investments through is, team, tech, and market. Um, and so usually um, on team, I think we're going to talk about this later, but and I can get into the attributes of, of what makes a good entrepreneur. But really with team, we're looking for, does this person have a big vision? Are they able to articulate it clearly? Are they the right person for um, a given type of company? And usually in our cases, especially when it's a PhD or postdoc or professor who has invented something, and then they want to commercialize the thing that they've invented, they are literally the best person in the world to go do that um, because nobody else has invented the technology before and nobody else knows the technology as, as well as they do. And so that's, it's usually kind of the software skills that we're looking for. Um, there are definitely cases where it's a non-inventor or maybe there's a business co-founder who co combines with the technical co-founder and we'll think about it differently. But usually the, the question we're trying to answer is, is this really, the best possible team to take a novel technology and try to turn it into something big. Um, on the market or on the technology side, we're usually trying to figure out one, is this technology actually novel? Um, and two, is it protectable? Um, and so the ways we, we do that really are, I guess there's one level is just having a general awareness of technologies that are funded. So for me, I, try to stay abreast of all of the latest things happening in the areas that I care about, which are sustainability, food, ag. Um, there's the second is for an individual company that we will go look at, it's doing a review both of the kind of commercial technologies, who are all the competitors out there, what are they doing and why is this different? And what has also been done in the academic context? Um, let's look at the literature, what papers have been published in this space. Does this new technology that the founders are claiming to be differentiated, is it actually differentiated? Um, and then the third, and I think this is really the most important is, can we actually protect it? Because there's so many new inventions, there's so many new things that are not actually protectable. And so a large part of the analysis that we do at Petri is, what is the IP landscape look like? So have other people patented similar or the same inventions in the past? Um, if not, how big is the IP landscape? Is there actually, can we actually go file patents on this stuff? Um, can we actually protect the technology that we've spent all of this work to, uh, to actually invent? And then the question from there is how much room above whatever the foundational IP or the foundational technology the company was started with, how much room above that um, is there for us to develop new technologies on top of it? And so we really wanna have a very strong argument because this is the most, um, I guess, knowable and um, diligenceable piece of the story is, is the technology actually novel? Um, I'd say on the, the last component of it is the market. And for us, the market 
is usually not really, um, we can't really do a whole lot to diligence the, the market side of the story. It's almost more of a binary yes, no, is this market large enough and is it growing fast enough to support a venture back company? Um, you may have heard from other people who have spoken before that the typical heuristic inv investors will use is the company needs to be, has have the potential to, to hit a multi-billion dollar market, usually greater than $1 billion um, in order to have a venture scale outcome. And so for us, where technologies are, are so nascent that they're not going to have any customers, we don't expect any of our companies to have any customers. Um, we're really trying to check the box on if this, if this technology works, and if they can scale it, um, is this market big enough to support a venture scale company? Can we imagine this company uh, earning hundreds of millions or hopefully billions of dollars in revenue in a given market? And um, that's more of a, a check the box kind of exercise for us. Um, I guess the, the last thing that's kind of outside that framework or for me is embedded within somewhere between the technology and the market framework is, uh, and is especially relevant to the things that I care about is the unit economics. Um, a lot of times we will find founders who have interesting technologies for say, a way to make sustainable cement or a way to capture carbon out of the air um, or a brand new food product made out of mycelium or whatever the example is. Um, really cool technology, really big market, interesting idea, potentially patentable, but the cost structure makes absolutely no sense. And um, as um, kind of anybody who's looked at sustainability investments in companies over the last 20 years, most of them have not done so hot. Um, and uh, a core piece of that is, is the um, lack of a compelling techno-economic story. Um, can you actually produce this thing at scale for significantly less than you can sell it for. Um, and so I really appreciate it when founders, especially at their earliest days, are doing the techno-economic analysis themselves, even if it's back of the envelope, to convince themselves that there actually is something here. Um, in order to convince me, then you probably need to be able to convince yourself. Um, and I think it's crucially important for things that are generally lower margin um, things unlike software, things unlike pharmaceuticals that are generally much higher margin. Um, so those, that's typically the, the framework that we use for uh, investing in companies. And then your second question was, what can you do with 200 to $500,000? Um, the, the honest answer is you can't do that much. Um, and we see at Petri, our role is to unlock, do the things that we can with a minimal amount of capital to unlock significantly larger amounts of capital so that we can actually do things. Um, in general, with, with you know, deeper tech, tech, deeper tech uh, startups, the two things that you're gonna spend your money on are one is personnel, um, and two is usually, I'd say in general, R&D. And that could be capital equipment, it could be a new facility, it could be you know, uh, pieces of equipment, um, but those are really the two big buckets. And our goal at Petri is to try to get you in a place where you can actually go out and raise enough money to do those things. Um, so usually the money that, that we invest tends to, go towards, um, tends to go towards building out the team, that's other co-founders, first hires, board members, et cetera. Um, uh, and it goes towards kind of minimum viable experiments that we can run to unlock some uh, additional technical data that we think we need to get. 
And, um, but the reality is that's not meant to last three years, two years, even in some cases, one year. It's really, we, we try to on average have that last about a year. Um, and we believe that in that sort of time frame, we can go out and, and find a lot more capital to, to capitalize the company with. That makes a lot of sense, Josh. I remember getting a good piece of advice once upon a time that like you think about any given investment round as the, the capital that gets you to the milestones necessary to raise the next one or to be yep. profitable. And so the goal here, if I'm understanding you correctly, is like there are some very key milestones at that formation stage that if we can just hit, then then all of a sudden that 250 or 500K investment becomes 10 times that with uh, you know later stage funds, larger funds that they get really excited about what you're doing. And presumably then, uh, you know, that allows you to invest at a much lower valuation in, in get a better right. stake in the company too. That's okay. correct. I like that. That's awesome. Um, but so Josh, I would love to hear though um, about some of your portfolio companies that, that you're really excited about that have that kind of proven this model is effective. Um, what are they doing? Why did they get you excited in the first place? Why are you still excited? What are some yeah. of the hiccups you face along the way? Um, how's the portfolio doing? Yeah, so um, I guess just to, to give some broad numbers as context. Um, so, uh, I mean, Petri is relatively young. We've only been around for about a year and a half. Um, and like I said, our, our model is to basically work with entrepreneurs intimately for 12 months. And we believe that within that 12 month window, we can then go out and raise more capital. So. Of the companies that we've invested in more than 12 months ago, um, more than 70% of those companies have gone on to raise seed capital. And the median deal size for those rounds has been about 5 million and the largest 10. And so uh, while the fundraising environment right now is, is uh, red hot and it's definitely help, helped us, um, we feel like the quality of those rounds and just the numbers behind those rounds um, suggest that the model that we're we're kind of developing at Petrie is actually working. Um, we have 12 companies in the portfolio today. Um, some of the ones that I think are, um, maybe I'll give one example that kind of makes the Petrie model maybe a little bit more tangible. And then I'll talk about some of the other more recent ones that I'm particularly excited about. That's because they're recent and, 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 uh, uh, and fun. Um, one of them is a company called Matterworks. They are developing um, next generation metabolomics tools and kind of the, the big vision is like, okay, Illumina is a, um, very large sequencing company and they, uh, really unlocked a whole new kind of data, which is genomics data, um, for the life sciences. And they've built a massive $50 billion company in the space. Um, basically you can figure out the genetic code of um, of any living organism by using Illumina sequencing. Um, and these guys want to do something similar, but in, in metabolomics. And um, we met the founder uh, a little bit more than a year ago. He was a computational biologist at the Broad Institute uh, affiliated with MIT. And he had identified that there was a real market need for better, faster, cheaper metabolomics tools. Um, and had identified some technology that they could potentially commercialize in that space. And that was it. It was just one guy and an idea. And that was it. That was the entire company. I mean, they had it, they incorporated, um, but that was really it. And so um, over the next handful of months, we worked with him 
um, across those three dimensions of team tech and market to one, build out the team. We helped recruit his co-founders, his um, scientific advisory board, um, and his first three hires. Basically, this no longer looks like just an idea. It looks like a proper team. Um, two, we helped him think through the various technologies that he could license. He wasn't the inventor, unlike a lot of our other companies, he wasn't the inventor of a technology. So we were looking at externally created technologies. Um, and then three, um, we wanted to figure out what is the right initial beachhead market, the first market you enter with a, a broad technology platform like metabolomics. Um, is, it some, is it in the microbiome where metabolomics really matter? Is it in food and agriculture where people do a lot of work in metabolomics? Um, is it in research hospitals and research labs? Like what is the right place to actually enter this, this broad market? Um, and we did that by getting him in front of and ultimately introducing him to his first customers. Um, and uh, over the course of about nine months, we worked with the entrepreneur to do this. And uh, a few months ago, he was able to raise um, a $6 million financing led by some really fantastic investors. Um, and we participated pretty heavily into that round. Um, but it kind of just shows you the ability to actually create value within a relatively short amount of time, but a meaningful amount of time, call it nine months, without spending that much capital. Um, and I think that's a, very indicative of the, the kinds of things that we try to do and we strive to do at Petri. Um, other more recent investments that I'm super excited about, um, one is a company called um, Yardstick. And um, these guys have developed um, some technology to measure the amount of carbon in the soil in a very um, fast and cheap way. Got a spider just coming down from the ceiling. Um, uh, very fast and cheap way, and they can do it in the field. So this is really important for uh, something that I care a lot about, which is um, carbon offset markets. So um, people here may know something about the fact that um, consumers over the last 10 years have become increasingly interested in sustainability. As a result, um, the largest companies in the world have also become increasingly interested in sustainability. And one of the ways they exhibit that interest is by, um, is by having some sort of net zero or lower carbon claim that they make. They'll say by 2030 or 2040, 2050, our entire company will be net zero from a carbon emission standpoint. And the reality is that all of those companies will have carbon emissions just from their daily day-to-day -day operations. But, um, and so they're gonna need some way to offset their carbon. If, if they pay somebody else to take carbon out of the atmosphere, um, then they can claim that their carbon footprint is lower. Um, say just as an example, a company emits hundred tons of, of CO2 every year, they could pay somebody to capture hundred tons of CO2 and therefore they would have a net zero uh, carbon footprint. One of the big ways that we can do this is in food and agriculture, basically allowing and facilitating the soil to sequester carbon for us. Over the last um, several hundred years, really several thousand years, we've uh, done industrial agriculture in such a way that we've really emitted a lot of, or uh, released a lot of the um, carbon that is naturally stored in soils, mostly through um, monoculture crops and through the industrialized processes that we use to farm those crops. And 
one of the things that people are talking about now is like, how do we incentivize farmers to adopt practices, things like planting cover, cover crops or not tilling their fields um, such that their fields naturally sequester more carbons? Can, can we actually pay, can, can those companies that want to offset their carbon footprint, can they effectively pay farmers to uh, sequester carbon by changing their practices? And one of the big bottlenecks in this space is around sampling. Like how do you actually know how much carbon is being sequestered by a given piece of land. And so these guys have developed technologies. Basically you take a probe, it uses um, near infrared spectroscopy. Um, so different wavelengths of light to predict the amount of carbon in the soil. So you basically take a probe, it goes on the, on the end of like a long drill bit. You can imagine like a drill like you've used in your house and you pump that into the soil and you pull it back out. And within that period of time, you know how much carbon is in the soil. And the idea there is that this will allow for um, very large carbon offset markets to, to be available in things like soil carbon. It will allow for farmers to get paid for sequestering carbon. Um, and it's potentially a brand, new, a, a brand new technology that could unlock these carbon offset markets in soil such that uh, companies can actually offset their carbon emissions. So this one I'm super excited about. Um, maybe I'll, I'll just pause on that one, but there's, you can see the other companies in our portfolio um, on our website. And if you're interested in checking them out, I, I definitely encourage you guys to, to do so. Interesting. Well, so, so Josh, I'm really curious here. You know, you talk about this like deep dive you do with these companies over the course of about 12 months. I mean, like what's going on day to day with you and your job? Because, you know, you've got to manage the portfolio. You've got to hunt for the next great investments, you know, work with investors. Yeah. But you're doing these deep dives with portfolio companies at the same time. Like, how do you manage that effort and that kind of work where, I mean, to it, from my perspective, it sounds almost like you're an employee of the portfolio companies. You're so involved yeah. <laughs> uh, before you go and move to the next one. Like, how do you juggle all of that at the same time? Yeah, um, you know, I don't think we have a good answer to that. Like there is something that is inherently not scalable about our model um, because we do spend a lot of time with our portfolio companies. And it's also the primary reason that most VCs don't spend that much time with their portfolio companies. Um, it's just because eventually you can only spend time with so many companies. Um, you only have so many hours in a day. Um, we're still kind of small enough and young enough where we haven't reached that ceiling yet. Um, eventually we will, but we're, we're just gonna, pretend like we can't see the future and, and do what we're doing now until it stops working. Um, and which is, which is usually a bad idea, but um, I think it, it works in this case. Um, and yeah, so I, I'd say, you know, that we typically divide our activities into a few things. One is um, like you said, Aaron, like we are constantly looking for the next company. Um, and we do this by talking to professors. We do this by talking to um, students, both grad students and undergrads. Um, and we do this by talking to people in industry. So um, I can guarantee you that at places like Impossible Foods, as soon as they go public, a few people will leave and they'll probably go set their own companies. We wanna know who those people are. So we spend time talking to them. Um, we also spend time working with our portfolio companies. And usually the way that we do that tactically is um, for the companies, so that the companies where I've led an investment in, I will meet with the founders on a weekly basis. And then we're usually communicating on Slack, you know, on a daily or every other day basis, depending on whenever they feel like they need something. And that could be as like high level as, you know, is this the right market to enter? And it could be as 
tactical and, and in the weeds as like, what accounting software do you use? Can I share my screen? Like I can't get my balance sheet to balance and I need some help. Can you help me out? Um, and that's like, to me, part of the fun. And like, to me, as somebody as a former entrepreneur, like I love doing that as on the entrepreneur side of the table is you get to think about things that are at like the 30,000 foot level, but then you get to think about the things that are at like, you know, the 30 foot or maybe three foot or three inches level. Um, and so, yeah, those are really the main two activities that, that we, um, that we do. And, uh, I guess the, the short answer to that is I tend to work a lot, <laughs> but, uh, I love it. I, I just love, love doing it. Awesome. Well, so you, you kind of set up this next question here. Um, so, so Josh, you mentioned being an entrepreneur previously yourself. Can you tell us how in the world you got involved with VC, how you got Petri off the ground and like, you know, what happened, you know, early days of your career, college study and all that jazz to get, yeah. get you where you are today? Yeah. Um, so I guess um, for me, what I've always cared about is sustainability, like even going back to before undergrad. Um, so I could say that's kind of in the loose thread. Um, I started off uh, in college, I studied economics and environmental studies. Um, so unlike a lot of my colleagues, I don't have a technical background. Um, and I first went into investment banking. Um, and I mostly worked on transactions in the renewable energy space. Um, investment banking is definitely, you know, uh, I guess it's a prestigious thing to do. I absolutely hated it. Um, it was uh, culturally just not, not the right fit for me. Um, I tend to like doing things where I have a high degree of agency. Um, I would say investment banking is one of the things where you have probably the lowest degree of agency. So that wasn't the wisest choice for me uh, from a culture fit perspective. So I, after doing that for a little while, I wanted to do something much more entrepreneurial. And for me, wanted to do either um, early stage company building or kind of impact focused or sustainability focused venture capital. And um, uh, I decided that uh, or and it was I was advised that I should go work on a company before trying to be a VC. Um, in general, um, if you look at the backgrounds of a lot of VCs, they tend to have come from companies before they they started VCs. There's not that many kind of career VCs um, out there. More people have worked in company settings. So um, through a, a ton of just serendipity, I um, I met the founders of a company in San Francisco called Phylogen. Um, it's an environmental microbiome company um, operating at this intersection that I'm working on now, which is at uh, the intersection of, of biology and sustainability. And it was one of these very, um, yeah, just serendipitous moments where I met the founders. They happened to be in New York where I was working like the week after on a business trip. Um, I was looking at a bunch of other clean tech companies. Oh, sorry, the company's called Phylogen. Um, P-H-Y-L-A-G-E-N. Um, I'll put the website in here. They've since pivoted to um, COVID diagnostics as basically anybody with genomics capabilities has. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, one of those, it was one of those situations where I happened, the founders happened to be in town. We met up for a drink at some ungodly hour after I was getting off work and uh, we totally kicked it off. And um, we, it, I just felt like they were great people. I felt like the mission of the company was great um, and they were just getting started. It was just a couple of people at the time. Um, their office was an apartment in Soma in San Francisco. 
Uh, it was like a loft style apartment and their lab was Ikea tables with fume hoods on top of them. Um, so it was definitely not, not glamorous, but I, I loved it. Um, and it was just a great, I joined as their chief of staff um, and worked very intimately with the CEO, um, really on kind of everything from capital formation, so raising money, to running the finance department of uh, the company, to operations and strategy, and even some business development and business strategy. Um, and for me, it was like an amazing way to see a company go from just three or four employees all the way through raising more than $25 million in capital and uh, expanding to almost 30 people in total. Um, and then um, from there, I felt like I had a pretty good handle on what it's like to be an entrepreneur. Um, and I actually tried to get another company off the ground um, that was based, um, or based on work from a professor down in Monterey, California, where we were growing seaweed on land in tanks. Um, for, as a sustainable food source. Um, and uh, ultimately, this was uh, not that long ago, about a year and a half ago, a little bit more than that. Um, we were working on launching this company. Um, COVID hit and was really unfavorable to both the kind of uh, bigger vision of the company um, and also to uh, just the, the logistics of the other founders. Uh, two of them had kids. Um, and it was just, uh, wasn't really the right, the right situation to start a company in. Um, at the same time, I had been working um, with Petrie actually in a part-time capacity um, and uh, just started naturally working with them more. And my connection to Petrie came through one of the founders of Petrie um, who uh, advised that company called Phylogen. Um, and he became somewhat of a personal friend and mentor of mine. Um, so he was really the one who, who brought me into the fold with Petri. Um, and so as you can see, and, and I should also say that the seaweed company that I'd worked on, um, then uh, my co-founder there was the previous CEO of Phylogen. And so um, as you can kind of see, like it's really just a thread of people. Like everything that I've done has been relationship oriented. Um, and I think in things like venture capital, early stage companies, these things start out so small. Um, you know, even the largest venture firms are not very large and, and companies that start really early, they're also tiny. So all of these things are really relationship driven. Um, and so I think that means um, as a piece of like maybe framing it into advice, um, like expanding your surface area of connectivity to people who are also interested in, in entrepreneurship, which all of you are doing right now on this call, like those are the types of things that can be done now such that you kind of like maximize your chance of having good luck, right? Like all of the things for me have just been right place, right time, right people. Um, and by exposing yourself to more people, um, you allow for a greater probability of, of, of um, having these kinds of things happen. So for me, it's just been all luck being with the right people. Um, I think doing good work, doing hard work, um, yeah. Awesome. Um, Josh, one last question from me. Any last general advice you would give to students that are interested either launching companies in these fields or, or you know, making their way in as an investor at some point? Like anything, anything else you would add on top of what you've already said? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the biggest thing 
to do early on is just to maximize exposure. Um, and I guess I think about it in a couple of ways. Like one, if you are interested, just try to read as much as you can. And there's some like really seminal and helpful texts. Like there's a book called Venture Deals by Brad Feld, which will give you the understanding of like, how does venture capital work? There's a book called Zero to One by Peter Thiel, who's a very controversial figure. But um, I think a lot of, uh, for me, that was a, an inspiring and motivating book to read. Like, how do you actually take something? His, his whole argument is getting from zero to one, from nothing to something is much harder than getting from one to a hundred. And so how do you think about getting from zero to one with a new technology, a new company, et cetera? Um, so I think reading books is great. I also say like read newsletters as much as you can. Um, and I'll try to be as tactical with the stuff as I can be just so it's, it's more useful. Um, there's one that I read every morning, which is um, Axios's ProRata newsletter. It basically uh, tells you every single venture capital and private equity deal that got done the day before. Um, and it's just really helpful for staying um, up on trends and seeing like what is actually getting financed because after you read that for 100 or 200 or 300 days in a row, you kind of have a sense of like, oh, what are the things that are actually taking off? Like, why are these things getting financed? Who's financing them? Um, that I think is, is generally helpful to be aware of the venture capital and, and early stage entrepreneurship ecosystem. And then I would say in addition to that, like I try to complement that general awareness with specific awareness around um, industries of relevance. So like for me, um, as somebody who's interested in say ag tech, um, there is a newsletter that gets put on by Ag Funder News. Ag Funder News is one of the best news sources in the ag world. And they have a weekly newsletter that basically covers all of the important things that happen in ag. And it's really helpful for me to be able to read that every week and stay on top of on top of things. So I would say um, any newsletters you can find about entrepreneurship um, and about specific you know, industries or areas of interest for you is relevant. Um, the other thing that you can do, which we just talked about is like, how do you increase your surface area of other people that you talk to and meet with? I think attending events like these, like going to everything that Aaron does at UC Davis, but you can also be more, more ambitious than that, right? Like there's other great universities just an hour away. There, Berkeley has events all the time. Um, UCSF has events all the time. Stanford, obviously a lot of technology comes out of Stanford. Like you can go, most of their events, especially in, in the virtual environment are free and are online, um, show up. And I think that in general, just beginning to be able to, to speak the language, see what other people are excited about and thinking about is, is quite useful. And then I think the last thing like all of you can do is go intern for a company. Um, I think it's like the number one thing you can do. And it's generally actually fairly achievable. Um, and I'd say the ways to go about that are like find in, whatever the area of interest is for you. Just try to find the venture firms who invest in that area and then look at their portfolio and see if any of them are hiring interns. And if not, and you find a portfolio company that's really interesting, just email, just hit them up on LinkedIn. I think you'd be surprised at how receptive people are to you saying, I think your company is amazing. Um, I'd really love to intern with you for the summer. I'm happy to do it very cheaply. Um, most people will say, heck yeah, like I'd love to do that. Um, so yeah, those are, so those are some of the tactical things I would, I would say. Awesome. Josh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. This is great advice um, and, and great insight here on the industry.
Well, folks, we have hit the two o'clock hour. Josh, thank you so much for your time. Let's give him a round of applause. Uh, appreciate the insight and the thoughts. <laughs> Thanks Thank all who joined us today. Um, please make sure you come back to VCs at UCD next time we host it. And uh, we'll let everyone take off. And good Aaron, luck for having me. Finals. <laughs>